with us. We're in the fourth chapter, the Gospel of John. We finished chapter 3. Last time maybe just began to look in chapter 4. Um, so Jesus has he has been to Jerusalem to the Passover. He has left the Passover. He came to the wilderness of Judea. And there him and his disciples were baptizing. John the Baptist was baptizing a little north of them. That brought about a question of baptism and purifying. Uh, you, you know, as you think about John the Baptist's ministry, he began before the Lord Jesus. John baptizes Jesus. The Spirit descends, the voice of God. John bears witness to Him. And now Jesus and His disciples are baptizing. So they're both baptizing separate from one another. And naturally, that's going to bring about a question. Well, whose is better? Whose should I have? Who should I go to? Where should I seek? And John, in the last half of chapter 3, one more time bears witness to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who the Lord Jesus is. And you know, whether or not, I don't know, but God brought this question about by His power and by His predestination, really. John's going to bear witness one more time because he's nigh to be cast unto prison. So in chapter 4, we'll see that. Let's read a few verses here. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again unto Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. So here you see that uh, Jesus is heard that John is, that the Pharisees have heard, that he's baptizing more than John, and he left Judea and departed unto Galilee. So if, if you look in Matthew, and here's the thing about the four Gospels, some have a detail that the other three don't. Some accounts, all four have the same details. But if you put them together, you can get a fuller picture of what's really going on. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, you read, When Jesus heard that John was cast into prison, he departed unto Galilee. So it looks like it's about the same time. Jesus in Matthew is going from Judea to Galilee, just as he is here in John, knowing that in John chapter 3, you read that John was baptizing in verse number 24, for John was not yet cast into prison. So John provides us that detail. So it must be near the time of the end of his ministry. And so one more time, this question is brought about. John points to the Lord Jesus, no credit to himself, no glory to John, John is saying, this is the man that you look to. This is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. His baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and with fire, that's the baptism that you need. John points wholly to the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of his ministry, his last words, if you'll have it, in the public is pointing man to the Lord Jesus Christ. And John, by wicked hands, is going to be taken into prison. So he says in... Uh, let, let's think just for a minute. Let's set this in order. We know John chapter 4. Jesus is going to meet with a Samaritan woman. Now in John chapter 3, Jesus is in Jerusalem at the Passover feast and Jesus speaks with one of, if not the leading teachers of the Jewish people. A man that's on the Sanhedrin court, we'll see that later in John. That's the 70 elders of the people. Those were the rulers and the overseers, government-wise, religious-wise, over the nation of Israel. He's one of the leaders, one of the top. And now we're going to come down to Samaria. And what is Samaria? And maybe, maybe we know this to an extent. But if you remember, and I'm sorry, history can be bland. But this is Bible history. It's in the Bible. 
David was made king over all of Israel. There were 12 tribes. And the tribe of Levi was not counted in that. And so David's son Solomon takes the kingdom after David dies. When Solomon dies, Rehoboam, his son, takes the kingdom. And that's when they come and they say, you need to lighten the load on us. Your father, he loaded us down with burdens and with taxes and you need to lighten the load on the people. And Rehoboam said, his burden is going to be like my little finger. He said, it's going to be worse now that I'm in charge. And the kingdom was rent. So with Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, there stayed Judea and Benjamin. That was the kingdom of Judah. The other ten tribes formed the kingdom of Israel. So if you look in Kings and Chronicles, you're going to see the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. They're two separate nations now. Rehoboam was king over Judah and Benjamin, and Jeroboam was made to be the first king of Israel. I believe that's right. And so there the division between the two began. Now when Jeroboam becomes king over Israel, he sets up those two golden calves. The reason for that is he said, if the people go back to Jerusalem to worship, they're going to leave their allegiance to me and they're going to go back under the old kingdom. And so he set up the two calves. That spiraled, so to say. And the northern ten tribes, the kingdom of Israel, fell into idolatry. And so what's going to happen is judgment. God is going to bring judgment on the northern kingdom, on the kingdom of Israel. And those ten tribes, the king of Assyria is going to come, overrun them, and you're not going to hear from them again in Bible history from that day forward. They're done for. But what the king does, if you look in, um, I don't know where I've got this wrote down. It's in Ezra chapter 4, verse number 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, that's the kingdom of Judah, that's all that was left at the time of Ezra. When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do, and we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Eshraddon, the king of Ashur, which brought us up hither. So what's going to happen is that God's going to take the people out of the country and the king of Assyria is going to send in people from other nations to live there. And they're going to send a priest to them. And the Bible says of these people, I don't know if I've got it wrote down for a later time. I do. 2 Kings verse 17, chapter 17, verse 24. The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Cutta and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sepharvim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead, in the place of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities there. So the actual lineage of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham have been moved out of the country, and the king of Assyria has moved in all these other nations to live there. So they're... They're half-breeds, and in some cases, they're not even Jewish. They have no lineage back to Abraham whatsoever. And so they sought in Ezra's day, we want to build with you. And Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the fathers said, ye have nothing to do with us. They were refused from building the temple with uh, the children of Judah, because they were not part with them. So this is Old Testament history, and we follow that into the New Testament as well. 
So here are these Samaritans. They're not Jewish. They're not of Israel. They're not of Abraham. They were implanted by the king of Assyria, but they thought they were. They considered themselves to be. Even in Old Testament Ezra's day, they wanted to build the temple and join in. While we serve the same God you do, let us join up with you. But the Jews, as in Ezra's day, they refused them. They wanted nothing to do with them. They were unclean and in a lot of ways lower than Gentiles. They were counterfeit Jews in the eyes of the people. So this is where Jesus is coming through. But He's not just coming to Samaria to the best of the best. He's coming to a Samaritan that's a half-breed, low-life, counterfeit Jew that's an adulteress and not just a one-time adulteress but a repeat offender. Now in the eyes of man, you've come from the Sanhedrin, the top of the religious world, to an adulterous Samaritan. You talk about other ends of the spectrum in man's eyes. You've went from the best of the best to the worst of the worst. But that's in man's eyes. You know what they both need? They need the same thing. They must be born again. Nicodemus needed a new birth. And the Samaritan woman, she needs a new birth. One is not better or above another. All that's in the mind and in the thinking of man. But God is going to come through Samaria. So John's cast into prison. That brings Jesus to leave Judea to Galilee You're going to read it several times in John as we go through this. For his hour had not yet come. There were many times they would have stoned Jesus or killed him before his hour came. You know when his hour was going to be? The Passover. He had a set time that he was going to leave this world. God had already ordered it. And so his hour's not yet come before all the focus and hate is turned towards him, he goes back to Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. So we know this, that the trip from Judea to Galilee necessitated a trip through Samaria. It's the same as if you're going to go to the beach. You can go a lot of ways, but if you're going to Myrtle, the best way is to go through Columbia. That's the quickest way. That's the easiest way from here to get there. Well, that's the case here as well. So is there a theological reason? I I believe there is. I certainly believe that he's coming for the purpose of speaking and drawing this woman unto himself. But also, geographically, it makes sense that he would leave Judea and go through Samaria. And he's coming now coming with intent and with purpose. And now here's the amazing thing of it. You talk about rich in mercy. Even with just man's rationale, it would make sense that God would come to Nicodemus, but that God would come to people that had no mind nor thought for Him, which is, that's what we were in honest truth that God would come to us and draw us to Himself. Not not that we went to Jerusalem. She's not going to Jerusalem to seek God. She's not seeking God in any way. And neither were we, yet the riches of the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ was shown to us that God would come and draw us to Himself. Is there a love? Can you imagine any love any greater than that right there. I can't put in words with what love God loves His elect. That He came to where they were when they were not seeking Him and He drew them to Himself. So He must needs go through Samaria. 
in Mark chapter 16, verse number 15 and 16. Here's the Great Commission. He said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. So read here also in verse 1, Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. I realize this this can be splitting hairs, but if you look in John chapter 4, disciples are being made then baptized. If you look in Mark chapter 16, they're believing and then they're baptized. And I believe you'll see that through the New Testament. If you look through the book of Acts, you're going to see that people believe and are baptized. That's the order that God has laid out in His Scripture. Is Jesus baptizing people that are not disciples? Not by the Scripture, He's not. So we baptize those that are professed believers in Christ. And I believe that's what the Bible teaches to be done. So he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So now, all he's doing is setting the scene. How did we get to Samaria? John was through in prison and Jesus left to go back home. That's how we got there. Now, where are we in Samaria? Well, we're in Sychar. Likely, this is Shechem because we know in Shechem that Jacob bought a parcel of ground. We have that in Old Testament history. And we'll look more at that as we get on into this Scripture. But John is providing us a geographical place. And I'm sure you've heard, you've heard people say, God saved me right up there. I was at this spot. I was at this place when God saved me. You know what there was? There's there's a place where that regenerative work in our individual lives occurred And we remember that place. We remember where God opened our eyes and opened our hearts. And and it's specific too. You know where you were when God opened your eyes. I believe that with all my heart. And so here John has got a specific geographical location. And we're 2,000 years removed. We're not going to go find this place now. I fully recognize that. And that's something that the critics or uh, those that would be opposed to the Bible, they'd say, well, you don't know whether this is true or not. But really, there were enough critics when this was written that if it were not true, it would have been proven to have been untrue. And if you got this fresh out of John's hand, you could walk right to the place and say, this is where he met that woman. And you could go into the city there and say, does anybody here remember? You reckon anybody remembered this? See, there's a lot more witness to the truth than what the devil would like for you to think. If somebody wanted to search it out and know when this was written, they could do it. They could find witnesses. And it's for that reason Paul says he was seen of above 500 at one time after his resurrection, many of which are alive today. So what's he saying? You can find these people that seen him with their own eyes. If you don't believe my word, you can find eyewitness. And God provides even geographical support to his word. We know where this is. He's in Shechem. He's at a place near the land that Jacob bought from the sons of Shechem that he gave to Joseph for an inheritance. And here's their burial place, where they're buried at. And Jacob's got a well there. Now we know from future discourse that this is deep, so it's dug. But the word well here also means gushing. So... 
it's in the ground and perhaps it's dug out pretty wide as you would picture an ancient well being. And the water down at the bottom is continually gushing fresh. It's not just a, a little stale pool of water, but this is a place where there's an abundance of water and where it's flowing and it's fresh all the time. Jacob's well was there, something that could be tied back to Jacob, the patriarch, that he dug with his hand. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey. Jesus, a man. Fully man. I don't know if you're like me, if you think on that long enough, that it always blows my mind. Don't, don't get Jesus being God and man. Don't mix them. They're separate. He is God, and yet He is fully man. And so He feels weariness. He's not superhuman like Superman. He can just go on forever and nothing affects Him. But He's affected by all of these things. He gets tired from journeying. And he can't just magically empower himself up. Then he wouldn't be a man, would he? No, he's, he's tired. You know what he has to do when he's tired? He's got to rest. And he's thirsty. You know what he's got to do when he's thirsty? He has to drink. And when he stubs his toe, his toe hurts. He's a man. He's enduring all things just like you and I are. And John is sure to tell us that he's wearied to feel fatigue from labor. He's tired. He's wearied. What do you do when you get tired? You sit down to rest. So he comes, and here's the well in Samaria, and the man Jesus Christ, a man that looks just like everybody else does, a man that doesn't look like he's got any money to his name, a man that looks just as mundane as anybody else in the country. He's tired from walking and he sits down on a whale. And to me and you looking at this, that looks perfectly normal. And it is. Ain't it? It's perfectly normal for this to happen. And so it's about the sixth hour. Jesus is sitting on the whale... The sixth hour, that's about 12 o'clock. It's high noon. The sun's above and it's beating down the hottest part of the day. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. I like how that's in parentheses, just like he forgot to mention it, and we need to add that in, the disciples aren't there. It's just Jesus. He sent his followers into the city to go buy some bread, some food. So Jesus is sitting on the well by himself. And here comes a woman of Samaria at 12 o'clock noon, and she's coming to the well to, to draw water. I don't know if she done this at this time every day, whether she just happened to run out, and needed some. We don't know why. But she's coming to do what she always does. She probably had to draw water every day. Maybe multiple times a day. So where do you go? Well, you go to the source. And in her mind now, she's going along with life just exactly like she always. There's no thought of Jesus. She don't even know who Jesus is. She certainly don't recognize Him. She don't know Him. She's not seeking anything religious. She's not coming to the church to worship. She's not thinking about God in any way. She thinks, I need to cook dinner or I need to wash this load of clothes and I'm right now out of water. I need to go draw some water out of the well. And here she comes with her pitcher to the well. And Jesus, who's thirsty, and we're going to read, maybe we'll just read. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? 
for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. If you look on down in verse 11, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with. So he's got nothing. You see the old whales. You can picture it in your mind. A bucket with a rope and a crank. And the bucket goes down. You know what that's there for? That's there to draw that out of the bottom of that whale. You can't get to it. So Jesus doesn't have a means to access that water. Could he have thrown it up to himself? Remember when he was hungry in the wilderness and the devil said, make these stones bread. Could he have done that? He could have done better. Jesus said these stones could be raised up to children of Abraham. But Jesus did not do that. Why didn't Jesus make stones bread to feed himself? See, you're you're starting to mingle there. Superhuman powers. He couldn't be superhuman. He had to be just like you and I. So he's not going to make this whale water supernaturally come up out of there. She's come. She's got a means to get down in there. And he says, Lady, would you give me to drink? This is very familiar. If you're any bit familiar with Old Testament, you know how uh, Moses found his wife. Moses was at a well. And she came and he uncovered the well and drew water out for her and for the animals. If you remember, uh, the servant of Abraham went down to the home country to find a wife for Isaac. And where did he find Rebekah at? Down at the well. And the servant said, when I get there, I'm going to ask the first woman that comes if she'll draw water, and if she does, then I'll know you've blessed my journey. That's what he told the Lord. He come down to the well, he said, would you give me to drink? And she drew out for him and all of the camels. And there's other instances as well. And so we're calling back to Old Testament imagery here. This is how the servant of Abraham found Rebekah for Isaac to wife. And it's here that this woman is going to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you say now that Rebekah's life, from that day that she drew water out of that well for Abraham's servant, her life was never, ever the same. She's going to go back with him to where Abraham and Isaac live. She's going to marry Isaac and she won't ever be back in her home country. My, but what a change the Lord Jesus makes. There's no comparison. You can see the type and shadow of it, but there's no comparison to the change that the Lord is going to make in the life of this woman. So she's coming, didn't know Christ. In Isaiah 65 verse 1, you've heard this verse many times. I am sought of them that asked not for me. Now think about what he's saying. They're seeking me that's not asking for me. I am found of them that sought me not. Those that aren't looking are finding me. I said, behold me, behold me unto a nation that was not called by my name. Now if you read it and you think logically, that doesn't make sense. But that's what's happening here in John chapter 4. Here's a woman that's not looking for Him. She's not seeking Him. She's not asking for Him. And she's going to find Him. How is she going to find Him? By the divine providence and leadership. This is not coincidence. This is God bringing together according to the riches of His will. And so she says, how is it? He's asked her to drink. If you remember back at the wedding in Cana about the purifying of the Jews, they washed cups, they washed plates, they washed tables, they washed their feet, they washed their hands, they 
washed their head. They, they washed everything. Because it had become great tradition that you don't drink or eat from something that is possibly unclean. And now we're not talking about unclean in that it's got moldy food on it. We're talking unclean and they, they're not going to eat at a buffet because a Gentile might have touched one of those plates and if he's touched that and then I eat from it, then I'm unclean. So we, we better wash it again just to make sure that there's nothing contaminating. Do you see how that is? They could be perfectly clean and sanitized. But because somebody's touched it, that's a Gentile, that makes it unclean again. And so they had to purify and they had to cleanse. And here Jesus has come to a Samaritan and said, let me have a drink of your water. And she says, how is it that thou, being a Jew... Now I assume there's some kind of dress, perhaps, that they wore that would let her know that. I, I don't know how she knew that, to be honest with you. But there was some means that she identified that Jesus was Judean. That thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Now you could say business dealings or dealings whatsoever and that may have been the truth. They may have avoided all contact with them. But the word means used jointly. So what she's saying is this is my cup, this is my bucket that I've touched, it's unclean to you, why would you ask me and why would you drink out of my cup? The Jews, they're not going to do that. That's unclean. They're, they're not going to use anything. You remember in the book of Galatians, you remember Paul's problem with Peter? When those from James down at Jerusalem came up, Peter who was sitting at meat with Gentiles withdrew himself. So we're not just talking about drinking out of the same cup. You might say, well, I'd never do that. You have in your life. But we're talking about eating at the same table. They were so strict, they're not going to eat at the same table as a Samaritan. They're not going to go into their business. They're not going to go into their house. They're not going to use anything jointly because that's going to make me unclean if I do that. So she says, how is it? And in, this is interesting, to me it is. Here she says, thou being a Jew. She calls Jesus a Jew and she's a Samaritan. In John chapter 8, the Jews are going to call Jesus a Samaritan. What is he? He's always on the wrong side, ain't he? He's always the bad guy. He's always a problem. So in Luke chapter 17, verse number 16, just to get an idea of how separate that the Jew and, and the uh, Samaritan is, Jesus has cured those ten lepers, tells them to go to the temple, and only one of the lepers comes back to worship him. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he adds the detail in verse 16 that this man was a Samaritan. So Jesus calls the Samaritan a foreigner. He's somebody that does not belong in the nation of Israel. They were separate they despised one another. The Samaritans despised the Jews because the Jews left them out. And the Jews despised the Samaritans because they weren't pure bloods. They treated them like Gentiles. And so they hate one another. They're against one another. And it's blowing her mind that Jesus would 
drink out of the same cup as her. Now look at how that is. You've got a, a Jew man that's going to drink out of the Samaritan's cup and her mind is blown by that. What about that God Almighty in heaven, eternal, self-sufficient, all-knowing and all-seeing, that God, the creator of the world, is going to become like man. You talk about drinking out of the same cup. He's going to come down in a body like you and I are and endure all the things that we endure. If her mind's blown by sharing a cup with a Jew, what about God sharing a body with you and I? It's astounding, isn't it? Don't let those little things go by and never think on that. God's going to come and condescend to us. And so verse 10, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Your focus is on the wrong thing. If you had knew who I was, then you would have come to me looking for something. Do you believe that to be true? The problem with her is she doesn't really know who he is. That's the problem with all of mankind today. Do you know why they're not seeking Jesus Christ? Because in reality, they don't truly know who He is. Now she's looking at Him. She sees Him. She knows what He looks like. She knows what He talks like because He spoke to her. She sees Him as a man, but she don't know who He really is. We know Him from stories. Man knows Him from accounts. Man knows Him from history. But to really know Him, man does not know. If thou hadst known the gift of God... So what is the gift of God? Gift is a... That's a word that implies gratuity. There's no cause for this to be given. It's not... God's not reciprocating. That's really what the Word's getting to. I didn't earn this and deserve it, and it's paid wages, but this is a gift of God, something that's unmerited and unwarranted that God is freely giving at no cost to me. All the cost is to Him. He's giving me this gift. Boy, that is so back. Man wants to deserve everything. There is no room for deserving. It's for his own sake, ain't it, Kev? For his own sake. Not for my sake. Not because I did. So every bit of I did and I done and God did because all that ought to be scrubbed out of your memory. Don't think like that. That's thinking wrong. God's never did. I, I said last night as we were going to bed, I said, boys, if we wake up tomorrow, know this. It's not because we deserve to. We don't deserve anything from God. We deserve to be destroyed. And yet God is so good to man. Naturally speaking. But in Christ Jesus our Lord, the redemption that He gave, the gift of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him, we have access to justification. Sins forgotten, declared to be righteous, declared by God to be in a right state with Him. Righteousness. That sinners, that ungodly people could be looked upon by God and considered as godly. How did we get that? How did we get a standing with God as righteous? How can I, with my rap sheet, stand before God 
and be justified. Did I earn any bit of that? This was the gift of God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And joy and peace, faith, all of the... And we could go on forever at what God's given man. And He ministers all of that to us through the working of the Holy Spirit of God. That the church can have joy and have peace in all things round about us. Because we're established on this salvation is a work of God and God has given it to us. And if you had known the gift of God, you would have sought after that. So Jesus now, who it is that saith, give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, change of speech here. We're going to add a little bit of respect into what she's saying. Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? A lot to unpack right there. Where's her mind still at? Now Jesus has said, what you need is some living water. What that word really means is moving water. That water in the well's gushing. It's moving. So you know, her mind, she's just like Nicodemus. Her mind's down in that well. She says, you're going to give me living water, but... You don't have any way to get down in there to it. You don't have anything to draw with. You ain't got a bucket or a rope. How are you going to get me this water? What's the source of this? Remember Nicodemus, Jesus said, you must be born again. Where was his mind at? In his mother's womb. You're telling me I've got to go back in my mother's womb? How can this be? You know what the problem is? Carnal mindedness. There's man's enemy. The devil in the carnal mind. And do you see now, through Nicodemus in here, and we'll see other examples, when Paul wrote that the carnal mind cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, that we can't grasp, we can't understand. It's not entered into the mind or the heart what God's prepared, but God's revealed them by the Spirit. And if we're going to understand, it's going to be spiritually discerned. So you can talk about all this salvation and all this goodness and all this gift of God if there's no regenerating work of the Spirit opening the heart, do you know where man's mind is always going to be? It's going to be on carnal things. It's going to be on how is this going to make my life better? My life is going to be better. It's going to be on grandma and grandpa and we're going to go see them again. It's going to be on saving something that's natural to me. My job, my marriage, my house. But the carnal mind will remain on carnal things. You will not, with good reason, convince a carnal mind to come to salvation in Jesus Christ. Now you and I, with the benefit of hindsight and knowing the whole Gospel of John and really the New Testament, we know what Jesus is talking about when He tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. We know what Jesus is talking about when He says, I to give you living water. But they have no earthly idea what He's talking about. What else could Jesus be talking about other than water down in that well? Put your, you're not going to understand it either. Man's got a high view of himself. 
but you put yourself in her place and this man says this to you, you're not going to know what he's talking about either. And so, in, I'll read it, 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. The natural man cannot receive the things of God. Cannot. That is, does not have the ability. Not may not. Not that he doesn't have permission, but cannot. He lacks the ability to understand the things of God. What's got to happen? A new birth. Some living water. A work of God must be done first in order that the things of God might be received. So her mind, still in the well, you don't have a means to draw this out. So where are you getting this water from? And then the second question, are you greater than Jacob, our father? Now, on down the line again in John chapter 8, You remember here, she calls Him a Jew. She's a Samaritan. The Jews are going to call Jesus a Samaritan. She says, are you greater than Jacob? And in John chapter 8, the Jews are going to say, are you greater than Abraham? You better believe it. Is He greater than Abraham? Is He greater than Jacob? Is being a son of Jacob going to save you? Is being a son of Abraham going to save you. It's got no bearing in it, does it? But this man Jesus, to be born by His sacrifice and blood, that's the means of salvation. He is greater. And He's the only source of water that will bring you to life. So they're both. You see the Jew, Nicodemus, and you see the Samaritan, They're both trusting in their lineage. Nicodemus trusted that he was a son of Abraham and religious and moral. And he said those Samaritans are a bunch of half-breeds and they're of no value in the kingdom of God. And the Samaritan, now on the other side of the coin, she's looking at those racist, bigoted, mean-hearted Jewish people They're not the real thing, but we're really, we're tied to Jacob. We've got his land here, and we've got his well. And so she says, are you greater than Jacob? I mean, he fed, he he let his family drink out of this well. His cattle drank out of this well. And even he drank out of this himself. So see, they're trusting in, in natural things as the means that God is going to accept them. Jacob drank from that well. The children of Israel drank from the rock and ate manna from heaven. And they all died. Jesus is going to bring that up in the future. And we're right now out of time. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So this water in the well, it's temporary. And to finish, think about this. Everything in this life is temporary. It's fleeting. It's just for a moment. And as Clark said on Friday of the Bible school, there's no happiness or fulfillment to really be found in this world. But everything that you do leaves you looking for another. You can take a vacation and have a wonderful time but you're going to come back and go back to work on Monday and in no time you're going to want another one. You're going to go to a ball game. You might have a wonderful time. But in a little while, you're going to want, I want to go back. You might watch a boxing match. There's no end. 
you might eat a good steak and it, you get full and savor every bite of that and feel so good after and in a day or two it's going to leave you looking for another. The whole of life is like that. You buy a house and you love it and you're satisfied with it and in just a little while you want to change it because you're not satisfied with it anymore. You buy a vehicle and you love it and you're proud of it and you wash it every week and in just a little while it's gone. You know there's scripture to back that up too. In Proverbs chapter 5 verse 6, lest thou shouldest ponder the path of life. What's that? That's what's important. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about living water. Lest you'd think about something like that. Her ways are movable, that thou canst not know them. Now he's talking about that whorish woman in Proverbs. She's a type and a shadow of evil. And you know what her ways are? They're always shifting. So you never recognize that there's no fulfillment in them. And that's the way man is. He goes from one thing to another to another. We've got a place at the lake. We've got a new boat. And that lasts for a little while and there's no fulfillment in that. That's not enough. So well, we sold our boat and we sold our camper and we lost our hindians on all of that stuff, but we're going to buy this now and this is what we're going to do. We're going to trade for this and we're going to... And man's always looking and he never recognizes that he's not going to be pleased with any of it. It's the nature of this world. It's the nature of evil. Why is it like that? To keep you from searching out what's really important. And man never will. You can believe the lie that man's going to search God out one day on his own. But that's a lie. Man left to his own is like a young and left to their own. They'll only bring shame. It's God searching for man. God showed up at this woman's well and her focus is going to change. And if God would show up at our well, our focus would change also. Anybody, anything?